A warm welcome to all our listeners. This is Reflections from Budapest, Religion, State and Society, where we look at issues of religious conflict, religious violence and reconciliation. We have previously concentrated on our research about anti-Semitism in Hungary. We have completed this research and published a two-volume set of books on the subject titled Anti-Semitism in Hungary, Appearance and Reality. This podcast is the first program of our new series focused on the Middle East. In our current research titled Attacks on Christian Communities and Institutions, we are undertaking fieldwork in a number of countries in the EU, Middle East and Africa. Our research in Poland was completed and we traveled to Iraqi Kurdistan at the end of March. We next plan to do research in Jordan, Jerusalem and the West Bank. Today we have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Joas Wagmakers, who is interested in the intellectual history of modern Islam with a focus on the political thinking among Islamists. His work contextualizes ideology by placing it in the context of the broader political and socio-economic history in which ideas are produced. He often tries to look for links with early Islamic history to explain modern debates. His research has concentrated on Salafism and particularly Salafi ideology, the Muslim Brotherhood, citizenship, women's rights, and Shiites' rights in Saudi Arabia and Hamas. Geographically, his interests lie mostly in Jordan, Saudi Arabia, and the Palestinian territories, although he also spent time reading international jihadi Salafi discourse. My name is Sharon Sugar. I am a researcher at the Danube Institute. Let me introduce my colleagues, Professor Jeffrey Kaplan, a Distinguished Fellow at the Danube Institute, and Zila Potsai, an intern at the Danube Institute. Thank you so much for joining us, Professor. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. My first question would be that could you tell our listeners a little bit about your research in Islam and Salafism and share with us what sparked your interest in the topic? Yes, um, my research focuses on, well, basically the things you mentioned. So I'm interested in modern Islam, contemporary Islam in the Arab world, the contemporary Arab world. And I very much take the approach that um, the texts are very important to me. I'm very interested in what the texts say, the details, the concepts, how they change, how they are appropriated and reappropriated by different people. That's what I find very interesting. And if you want to do this properly, you have to contextualize these things. It's very important to do that because these contexts very often uh, decide to what extent people appropriate certain concepts and not others or vice versa. So that's one thing I'm very interested in. More specifically, as you mentioned, uh, Salafism, Islamism, women's rights, Shiite rights. I'm basically interested in situations in which the context is at odds with or finds it difficult to accept uh, the texts, that the texts are, are sometimes difficult to accept. And when there is friction there, that's where I find it interesting because that's where people come up with different answers. Um, and what got my, um, what sparked my interest in the topic, I suppose you could say that I've always been interested in religion, history, and politics, not necessarily in that order, but perhaps, yeah, in all three. And the Middle East and the Arab world is a region where these three things very often come together in uh, a very interesting way. So that is uh, what what I find interesting about these things. And um, yeah, that's basically what I have to say on that. 
Let me jump in for a second. For our listeners who have no background in Islam, let me ask a, a very basic, a couple of very basic questions to help give them some context. When you speak of texts, we're talking about the Quran, the Hadith literature, fiqh um, or judicial or jurisprudence, that kind of thing. Yes, but also other texts. I think that um, if you look at, um, for example, if you look at the current situation, I may be. Uh, jumping ahead a bit here, but still, if you look at the current situation between Israel and Hamas, there is a strong tendency among some people to only look at the texts and explain Hamas's behavior, for example, on the basis of texts that they have produced. And other people will say, no, that's wrong. You shouldn't treat people as if they are slaves to the texts. Um, they're obviously um, shaped by the circumstances and by the context in which they live, the political and socioeconomic circumstances. And I agree with that latter point of view, but that does not mean that we should throw away the texts. The texts have been written and have been produced by organizations such as Hamas, so apparently they mean something to them. And I think it's very important to treat both of these in a sort of reciprocal relationship, um, how the texts influence the context and vice versa. And I think that is very uh, interesting, and by that, uh, with that preface in mind, I, I don't just mean the Quran and the Hadith and the the jurisprudence and literature that you just refer to, but also the texts that are reproduced by uh, contemporary Muslims. That's a very interesting connection. How do the two interact? Because in looking at Salafi and Jihadi literature, they definitely do. One references the other and uses the classical text, the religious text, as proof text to show the the truth of their of their ideology or viewpoint. Right. Well, sometimes it can it can work in very simple ways, in a sense. I mean, I live in a country where there is Islamophobia and where Muslims are discriminated against sometimes, or perhaps I should say often. I don't know. And. Muslims can, for example, be refused a job or an internship or uh, entrance to a discotheque or to a theater or something like that and think to themselves, okay, that's that's a shame, I was discriminated against, and not give any religious meaning to that. But if you take a passage from the Quran like, um, So Jews and Christians will not be satisfied with you uh, and until you follow their religion, that passage was obviously something that should be seen in the context of the Quran and the life of the Prophet Muhammad and how he was struggling with Jews and Christians at that time. But for someone, for a Muslim in the Netherlands or in another Western country who faces discrimination time and time again, such a passage can take on new meaning. And then it no longer is a situation. Then, then of course, the Quran confirms what you do in your daily life. And if you have people who are out there to spread a message in which they say, look, the Quran already uh, predicted this, the Quran prophesied what your experience would be, then it's no longer the Quran emphasizing, or sorry, um, confirming your experiences, but then your experiences start confirming the Quran. So there is this very dynamic relationship between the context on the one hand, the text on the other. And as such, you start seeing things around you that you interpret as expressions of what the Quran already predicted 1400 years ago. 
So that's just one example, but there are obviously many examples that you can give about how these texts and contexts interact with one another. Thank you. And now, uh, could you tell us a few words about the history of Salafism? Sure, yes. Uh, the history of Salafism is uh, is perhaps somewhat complicated. Um, perhaps we should start with the situation of what Salafism means, just the word Salafism. Uh, Salafism is the the English translation of the word Salafiyya, and Salafiyya is derived from, from the word Salaf, and Salaf means forefathers or ancestors, and it is usually used or applied in connection with the word Asalih, so Asalaf Asalih, which means the pious predecessors, the pious forefathers. And this is a term that refers to the first three generations of Muslims based on a hadith by the Prophet Muhammad in which he said, Khayra nas qarni, the best of the people of my generation, and then the people after that, and then the ones after that. So that means my generation was the best, and then the one after that, and then the one after that. So that suggests the first three generations of Muslims were the best Muslims ever. And Salafis are basically, Salafi basically means Salaf-like, like like the Salaf. So those are the people I define as those Sunni Muslims who claim, I'm not saying that they are actually right, I'm just not getting involved in them, right? But who claim that they emulate the first three generations of Islam, i.e. the Salaf, as much as possible and in as many spheres of life as possible. And that applies to theology, that applies to um, legal issues, that applies to spirituality, that applies to community, that applies to rituals, all spheres of life. And they believe that they are actually living like the Prophet and the first three generations of Islam, or at least as much as possible, as much as their piety can uh, withstand. And that is what I, how I define modern-day Salafism. Now, Salafism um, is a difficult term, as I just mentioned, from a historical point of view, because the word Salafi has not always meant the same thing. Um, I take the word Salafi to mean what I just said, but if in the Middle Ages, for example, say a thousand years ago or 500 years ago, you said, um, I'm a Salafi, I am a Salafi, it meant something different. What it meant was that you ascribed to certain theological views about the Quran, that you had a very uh, fideic or fideistic reading of the Quran, meaning that you took the text as it was, rather than using uh, extra textual means, for example, rationalism to explain certain things about the Quran. And this, um, this a uh, fideistic reading of the Quran really focused on the concept or the the idea of um, the names and attributes of God. And the names and attributes of God refers to things, for example, that are mentioned about God in the Quran. So it says, for example, that God has hands or that God has eyes. Now, Muslims found it difficult uh, hundreds of years ago how to deal with these because some said, well, if God has hands, does he have hands like these, like mine or like yours? Um, and that could be, but that they were accused of being anthropomorphic, of, of ascribing human qualities to God, which was impossible because it says in Surah 42, verse 11, verse 12, uh, He is not comparable to anything. There is nothing like him. And given that God is not like anything else, he cannot be like me or like you. And if he's not like me or like you, then he cannot have hands like mine because I've already got those hands. 
Same thing about eyes, same thing about legs. And it's, it's mentioned, for example, that God is a leg. Um, so what does that mean? Well, there were some people who said, no, we ought to take that literally and we ought to take that um, as it just as it is written. So that is an anthropomorphic um, interpretation. Salafis disagreed with that. There were also people who said, no, we ought to interpret that metaphorically. So when, it's, when it says God's eyes, then it doesn't really mean God's eyes, it means God's insight or God's knowledge, for example. Or when it says God's hands, it doesn't mean God's actual hands, but God's strength. That was what, what was referred to as ta'wil uh, in, in Arabic, uh, metaphorical interpretation. This was um, used by the Mu'tazila, for example, uh, and the medieval uh, trend within Islam. Uh, the Salafis also disagreed with that. Uh, the mainstream, what would later become the mainstream position was to say, okay, we will accept that God has hands, but we can speculate about what they look like. Same thing applies about um, that God sits on a throne. What does that mean? Does God sit on a throne the way I'm currently sitting on a chair and you presume to be as well? Um, no, it doesn't mean that because I'm already sitting on a chair like that. So God cannot sit on a chair like this because that would mean that he is like me and he cannot be like me because that's what the Quran says. So Salafis were the ones who said, God has hands because that's what it says in the Quran and that's what we accept. But at the same time, we're not going to speculate about what these hands look like. And that way of interpreting the Quran is what they refer to as bila kayfa. Bila kayfa means... Uh, without asking how, without how, literally. So this is their point of view with regard to the Quran, specifically with regard to these issues of hands and eyes and a leg of, of uh, God. And that exemplified their attitude towards the Quran, that they said, look, we accept the text as it is, but when if there are things we don't understand, we're going to accept that we don't understand them. We're not going to ask how, just going to accept it. That was their view of the Quran, and that is what was typical of Salafis in the medieval times, basically until the 20th century. If you said, I'm a Salafi, that's what you believed in. You believed in reading the Quran and just reading what it said, uh, believing what it said without questioning it and without using your, your rational brain to understand it if you didn't understand it. In later years, later on in the 20th century, the word Salafi came to take on a new meaning. It came to take on the meaning of reformist, of, um, uh, for example, a famous example is uh, Hans Wehr. Hans Wehr was a, was a German Arabist who wrote a very good Arabic dictionary. And if you look at the word Salafia there, you will see uh, a something like, I, I haven't quite memorized it, but uh, a reformist movement founded by Muhammad Abdu. And Muhammad Abdu was a 19th, 19th, early 20th century Egyptian scholar who was a very um, modernist scholar and who was often labeled a Salafi, but it's very doubtful whether he saw himself as a Salafi because he didn't have those theological views. He didn't have those, uh, those points. He didn't describe uh, the word Salafism to himself. He didn't describe himself as a Salafi. So um, Salafism from this strictly theological meaning went on to have the sort of being the equivalent of reformist, of modernist. And in our day and age, basically since the second half of the 20th century, or particularly since the 1970s, it has taken on the meaning that I gave at the beginning. Namely, a Salafi is a Sunni Muslim who claims that he or she um, follows 
the Salaf, the first three generations of Muslims, as strictly and in as many spheres of life as possible. So this is basically the history of Salafism in a nutshell. Well, thank you. I'm sorry, it was a very good history. <laughs> Just a, in my own curiosity, um, the, there's often a confusion in the West between Salafism and Wahhabism. Whereas the Wahhabis had very much the same idea, but they wanted to eliminate albida, any any kind of innovation that took place between the time of the Prophet and the rightly guided Khalifs and the present day. It sounds like Salafis are not interested in that. They're not, they're not going back to that kind of a fundamentalist reading of history and text. Oh, no, they are. They are. Uh, in fact, the Salafis, the, the word Wahhabi is controversial because uh, the people that I would label Wahhabi, because I do use the term, and I'll, I'll go into why I do that uh, in a minute, but the people that I label Wahhabis usually say, no, we don't worship uh, Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab, uh, the name from which the uh, the, the word Wahhabi uh, stems. So we don't want to be called Wahhabis, we're just Muslims. So in that sense, it's a controversial term. But Wahhabis are Salafis. They're the same thing. But Salafis are not necessarily Wahhabis. And the reason is the following. Salafism is a broad movement or a broad trend, I should say. I shouldn't call it a movement, but a broad trend or a broad, broad stream within Islam. And Wahhabism represents the Najdi variant of that. Najd is a central Arabian region where Riyadh is the capital of present-day Saudi Arabia, is in Najd. And it had certain specific elements that set it apart from the rest of Salafism. It, it's basically 90% the same, but it's um, it, on certain points, it's, it's slightly different. Salafis and Wahhabis are the same with regard to bid'ah, with regard to religious innovations. They're against that. They don't like it. So, for example, if someone says... Um, out of a sense of piety, I want to pray six times a day rather than five times a day. Salafis will likely, and Wahhabis will likely say, your piety, your sense of piety is very good, but you should not do that because God has commanded us to pray five times. Not four, not six, five times. Also, with regard to theological innovations, if you come up with ideas that were not held and uh, propounded by the Salaf, who are obviously, of course, the sort of the guiding light for Salafis, uh, then you shouldn't do it. Because if they didn't do it, then you shouldn't do it either. And they are very much guided by the texts about the Salaf. So Wahhabis are all Salafis, but Salafis are not all Wahhabis. But the two are overlap so much that it's uh, it's it's uh, more or less the same. Um, another thing in which there is a slight difference, not so much anymore, but until the 1970s, this was basically the case, was that um, Salafis have a strong tendency to say, uh, we reject uh, the different schools of Islamic law because the Salaf themselves didn't have these schools of Islamic law either, and if they didn't have them, why should we? Wahhabis, on the other hand, have a strong Hanbali uh, background. Many of them follow the Hanbali school of law. This is not so much the case anymore. Um, since the 1970s, and particularly in, in, in current years, uh, they are far more likely to look um, across the borders of their own school of Islamic law, as you probably know there are four schools of Islamic law in Sunni Islam, uh, and many Salafis say, look, these schools of Islamic law, there is much wisdom in them. Many of the scholars representing these schools were great scholars, 
uh, and it's and particularly for lay Salafis who are not scholars themselves, it's very good if you follow them because if you don't follow them and you start coming up with solutions of your own, you may make huge mistakes. But if you're if you're really a scholar, then you should ideally um, dismiss these these madhahib, these schools of Islamic law, because the Salaf themselves, the early generations of Muslims, didn't have them either. And if we are serious about following the Salaf, then we are, should also be serious about dismissing these schools of law as not necessarily um, sources of emulation, as sources on the basis of which we lead our lives. And as such, um, you see that that is another slight difference between uh, Wahhabis in the past and Salafis now. But once again, uh, it's it's basically the same thing. And um, uh, Wahhabis have no problem being called Salafis uh, in general, uh, although Salafis do have a problem being called Wahhabis for reasons I just explained. Thank you. And now, uh, could you explain why has the term Salafi become synonymous with the Islamic uh, experiments in uh, the West world? Yes, that's a very good question. I think the reason is that many of the people who um, have committed terrorist attacks, such as Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State, uh, against Western targets, but also, of course, and even more so in, in the Muslim world, world, particularly in Iraq, for example, and also in uh, in, in Syria, uh, they are Salafis. Now, again, this is controversial because there are many Salafis. If there are any Salafis listening to this podcast, they will likely say, no, they are not Salafis. The Islamic State is not a Salafi organization, and Al-Qaeda is not a Salafi organization. They are an extremist terrorist organization, and they have nothing to do with Salafism. I understand that point of view, but I cannot accept it for the simple reason that Salafism is a broad trend, as I just pointed out. And most Salafis, in fact, probably the overwhelming majority of Salafis, are quietist Salafis, which means that they do not engage in political activism. They do not engage in oppositional politics. They do not found political parties. They do not participate in elections. They do not participate in political debates. They do not participate in demonstrations, etc., etc. They are quietists. They just focus on teaching, preaching, um, and and cleansing the tradition of all kinds of religious innovations as they see them. But there is also a trend called political Salafism, or not called political Salafism, but these are Salafis who do translate their Salafi views into politics. And there is even a small trend, it's small, numerically small, but nevertheless quite loud, namely jihadi Salafism. And these this is the trend that Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State belong to. Now, obviously, I can imagine that the overwhelming majority of Salafis who have nothing to do with terrorism, who have nothing to do with violence or suicide bombings or what have you, that these people do not want to be associated with each, these jihadi Salafis. But theologically and legally and spiritually, and with regard to several other issues as well, their doctrines are very much the same. The difference between them is how they deal with politics and how they deal with society, and as a result of that, how they deal with violence. So these are real differences, and many, many Salafis are extremely against terrorism. They have written whole books against terrorism and against Al-Qaeda based on Salafi reasonings. So this is a, a, a very, very strong bone of contention between them, between quietist and political Salafis on the, on the one hand and jihadi Salafis on the other. Nevertheless, I still believe that jihadi Salafis can be classified as Salafis. A minority, sure, 
and a violent minority and one that most Salafis disagree with, but nevertheless as Salafis. And I believe that to answer your question, I needed this to come to answering your question, that many people in the West have equated what these jihadi Salafis do, so Al-Qaeda in the Islamic State, with the term Salafism as a whole. That is wrong. That does not do justice to Salafis. And uh, I understand why many Salafis are angry about that and why they do why they think it doesn't do justice to them, because it doesn't. Uh, but that is nevertheless, I believe, the reason. So in January, we plan to do conduct uh, fieldwork in Jordan. You have written quite a lot on Salafism in that country. Jordan is noted as one of the more moderate countries in the region, and the king it has gone great lengths to include Christian community in the life of the kingdom. How strong then are the currents of active and quiet Salafism in the country, in your view? Um, well, it's definitely a minority. I can't give you any numbers. Um, quiet Salafis are definitely in the thousands, possibly tens of thousands, but that is still a minority. Uh, firstly, let me say something about Jordan in general. Jordan is is a country that is overwhelmingly Sunni Muslim, and it has, a, a, as you mentioned, a Christian minority, but it doesn't really have a Shiite minority. Um, there is some talk of some Shiites, uh, for example, who've come as refugees from Iraq, and that is undoubtedly true. Um, but this is really numerically, this is negligible. I, I don't think there's a there's a, a strong community there in in terms of numbers. Jordan is very much a Sunni country. And for many people, and I've seen this myself in mosques where I, I went to mosques and and, and uh, talked to Salafis and, and attended their classes, that many Jordanian Muslims just don't see the difference. They say, okay, we're Sunni Muslims and Salafis are Sunni Muslims, and we believe in God and in the Quran and in the Prophet, and, and we we believe that uh, the Prophet was succeeded by several caliphs, and they believe that too. So on a very superficial level, there is little difference. It is only when you go into theology and into the, the the nitty-gritty details, as it were, that you really start seeing the differences between these. So I think that's important to point out. Um, with regard to their influence, I think that Salafis have, they have some societal influence because they attract new members. With regard to politics, they have very little influence. And the reason for that is that Jordan is a country that actively tries to portray itself as a moderate country and that it's Islam, the Islam that the, the kingdom, but the king himself and the queen as well, but the kingdom as well, uh, try to preach and try to uh, stimulate is a moderate, tolerant, just Islam, non-violent and uh, tolerant of other people, not just Christians, but also um, Shiites, also other people, and as such, um, Jordan is the, the Jordanian king himself. He even wrote this in uh, Our Last Best Chance, which is the title of his autobiography. But this is also uh, mentioned sometimes by Jordanian officials. The Jordanian state is suspicious of Salafism. On the one hand, they acknowledge what I just said, namely that the overwhelming majority of Salafis are nonviolent and that they can actually help in writing against violent Salafis, uh, producing books and fatwas, etc., and they have. Many Jordanian Salafis are uh, staunchly in favor of the regime. They are they really speak out in favor of the regime, and they call for stability and peace and security, etc., which is really a sort of 
thing that the regime uh, quite likes. But at the same time, the king himself, but also others, see that Salafis share many doctrinal issues with the Islamic State and that they share many uh, religious beliefs with Al-Qaeda in the Islamic State. And as such, they are suspicious of them, also because the Jordanian state tries to portray itself not just as moderate and just and, and tolerant, but also promotes a form of Islam called traditionalist Islam. And this is the type of Islam that is based on the tradition of Islam that goes back and that has been handed down from scholar to scholar all the way back from the Prophet Muhammad until now. And that is a tradition that in the eyes of Salafis is filled with the very religious innovations that they abhor. So Salafis are not traditional at all. They are not old-fashioned. They're, they're, they're sometimes seen as old-fashioned, but they're not fashioned, old-fashioned at all. They are radical in the sense that they break with Islamic tradition, and it is precisely that Islamic tradition that the Jordanian regime tries to promote. So the Jordanian regime likes the fact that the overwhelming majority of Salafis in the country are uh, politically quietist, that they are non-violent, that they support the regime, but at the same time, they see them as breaking with a tradition that to the state itself is very important. And therefore, they're always a bit, they keep their distance. They they keep them at arm's length. Uh, in a, to a certain extent, they like them, but to a certain extent, they're, they're critical and skeptical. And that that is the sort of dual attitude that, that um, uh, typifies the Jordanian state in its uh, relationship with Salafism. Mm-hmm. And what would you say, does Hamas have support among Palestinians in Jordan? I do believe that Hamas has uh, support among Palestinians in Jordan. Um, as you probably know, um, probably the the majority of inhabitants in Jordan are of Palestinian descent. And I emphasize the word probably because we don't actually know this. Uh, demographic research is, is rather scarce. So many inhabitants in Jordan are staunchly pro-Palestinian and are, uh, show a lot of solidarity with uh, the Palestinian case and with uh, the Palestinians in general. And many of them can be uh, pro-Hamas as well without suffering the consequences. Uh, the people in Gaza, for example, can be pro-Hamas as well, and many of them are, uh, but they are now suffering the consequences. Oh, and, and in very real terms, uh, Israel is obviously attacking the Gaza Strip. Uh, eight or 9,000 people have been killed already, uh, many of them children, and uh, they know exactly what it means to support Hamas uh, because they are uh, suffering uh, the consequences, as I said. In Jordan, you can easily support Hamas without suffering any consequences because Israel is not attacking Jordan. So in that sense, it is even easier to be pro-Hamas in Jordan than it is in the Gaza Strip. I don't have any numbers for you uh, to what extent Hamas is supported among Palestinians in Jordan, but uh, I have spoken to uh, many Palestinians or Jordanians of Palestinian descent, I should say, and they have strong solidarity with the Palestinian case and certainly also with, uh, with Hamas. So I think uh, in general, there is strong solidarity with, with the Palestinians, and it would not surprise me at all if this translates into a lot of support for Hamas as well. Can you give our listeners a short history of Hamas? What are their origins and what are their goals? Right. Hamas was founded in 1987, and it was um, it started as more or less the Palestinian branch of the Muslim Brotherhood. And I say more or less because there was already a Palestinian Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, but this Palestinian Muslim Brotherhood was very different. The Palestinian Muslim Brotherhood was found, founded in 1945 
uh, so a few years before the founding of the State of Israel. And the people who were involved in this were initially fighting against the founding of the State of Israel, so they were always strongly anti-Zionist, but at the same time, they were willing to cooperate with Israel. For a long time in the 1960s and 70s and 80s, um, the Muslim Brotherhood was mostly focused on making society more Islamic. And as such, they were seen by Israel as a sort of politically quietist, non-violent alternative to groups like Fatah and the Palestinian uh, uh, Front for the Liberation of Palestine, the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, I should say, and uh, you know other groups, uh, Palestinian groups that that were militant and that were known for uh, for uh, their hostage taking, for example, in the 1970s or uh, attacks on, on Israeli targets. And as such, uh, the Muslim Brotherhood was a very quietist, apolitical um, group focused on Islamizing society. And they were not pro-Israel at all, absolutely not, but they believed that Israel should only be fought once society was ready for it. And they believed that society was not ready for it at that moment. So in 1987, the reason Hamas was founded in 1987 is because the Palestinian uprising, the Intifada, broke out. And this intifada broke out and the Muslim Brotherhood in the Gaza Strip, so the Palestinian Muslim Brotherhood in the Gaza Strip, had already started considering whether to start attacking Israel. They were collecting weapons. One of the people involved in that was Sheikh uh, Ahmed Yassin, uh, the paraplegic uh, man who you probably still know who was uh, uh, assassinated by Israel uh, almost two decades ago. And this man started collecting weapons and Hamas was using these weapons, but it was not actually applying them against Israel. Then the Intifada broke out and the Muslim Brotherhood was basically keeping its powder dry and not getting fully engaged. But then it saw that so many Palestinians were out in the streets protesting Israeli occupation that they thought we need to get involved in this. And that was a very rational and a very pragmatic decision to get involved in that and to believe that if we stand on the sidelines now and we retain our position of Islamizing society and not fighting against Israel, then we will stand on the sidelines forever perhaps and we will not be taken seriously. So that's when they founded Hamas, the Islamic resistance movement, Harakat al-Muqawmah al-Islamiyya, literally means uh, the Islamic resistance movement. And Hamas itself as a name means something like a zeal or enthusiasm. And they founded that organization so that they could use a Muslim Brotherhood type of organization to fight against Israel. Israel initially supported Hamas when it had not used violence yet, but then as soon as Hamas started using violence, uh, obviously that was uh, the end of that and it was outlawed by Israel. Hamas was closely involved in the first intifada from 1987 until 1992-1993, more or less petered out at the end. And uh, then it was very much against the Oslo peace agreements that were uh, concluded between the PLO on the one hand and Israel on the other. And it used suicide bombings, for which it was known at the time in the 1990s, to put pressure on Israel on the one hand that we're not going to take this, we're not going to accept this, but also put pressure on uh, other Palestinian factions to say, look, this peace process shuts us out of the decision-making, we want to be there as well. Make sure that you don't forget that we are still here. Now, the peace process also basically didn't amount to much in the end, in the late 1990s, it really didn't uh, didn't go well at all. And then in 2000, the Al-Aqsa Intifada starts, so another uprising, 
And again, Hamas was quite skeptical of whether or not to join. It, it took a wait and see attitude at first. I remember distinctly reading about this in Hamas's own publications that they said, you know, we, we don't want to get involved yet. And people were saying, where is Hamas in all of this? Because the Palestinians were fighting Israel, but Hamas was reluctant to join. And it was not until they saw that this was here to stay, that this was not just a fluke, but actually something that was here to stay, that they joined and they joined stronger than ever with, again, with suicide bombings that killed uh, hundreds of Israelis, including hundreds of Israeli uh, civilians in, in buses and restaurants, etc. And that basically went on until about 2005. That is more or less when they stopped using suicide bombings and started shooting rockets at Israel occasionally. By occasionally, I don't mean that they shot a few rockets, they shot many rockets, but they didn't do so all the time. They just, it was bouts of shooting rockets uh, every now and then. We saw that again in 2021, two years ago, when they started shooting rockets again, which led to an Israeli counterattack. And the latest iteration of this was obviously the 7th of October, when they staged a large-scale attack in which 1,400, and as far as we know now, 1,400 Israeli civilians were killed. And that's basically, in a nutshell, the history of Hamas. There was obviously much more to tell, but uh, we have more to discuss. Let me ask, just to, as a follow-up, remembering from the first intifada, living in Hebron at the time, in Al-Khalil, that Hamas was very much a latecomer, but there was an, one of the things that brought them into greater activity was that there was a good deal of competition and they didn't want to lose support or more than support, um, Waste influence. The, for example, Hezbollah Tahrir was much more active in the early stages, the first intifada, at least in the area around Hebron. And Hamas was nowhere to be seen. They were very much a latecomer. Is this a is this a correct observation? And it was it the same pattern in Intifada too? Yes, I think it is a correct observation. Also, you mentioned Hebron, which is obviously in uh, the West Bank. Hamas is historically strongest in the Gaza Strip, so that that also has to do with it. So the Gaza Strip was its its home base. It's still strongest in the Gaza Strip. Its founders were from the Gaza Strip. And it does have representation in the West Bank, of course. And in 2006, they also won the uh, parliamentary elections, also in the West Bank. So it's not absent there, but it doesn't come as a surprise at all to hear that they were latecomers there as well. They, they were even latecomers uh, in, in uh, the Gaza Strip because they, they took a wait-and-see approach. This is typical not just of Hamas, but also of the Muslim Brotherhood. If you remember when the Arab Spring, if we can still call it the Arab Spring, broke out in 2010, 2011, late 2010. Um, the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, for example, very much took a wait-and-see approach. They did not want to get involved straight away. They wanted to negotiate with the regime. Perhaps this was also because they didn't read the situation correctly, because they didn't realize immediately that this was something bigger, that this was not just an ordinary demonstration, this was not just a, a regular protest, but this was really something bigger. Perhaps they didn't realize that, perhaps they didn't see it, but because they have suffered so much repression by the Egyptian regimes, and because they are basically a middle-class group that tries to get involved in politics, their natural instinct, as it were, is to negotiate, is to talk, is to get involved in a political way. And it was not until they saw that this was no use, and that the Arab Spring was really something different, was really a big event, and with millions of people involved, that they joined and eventually started leading this. And obviously, um, 
then afterwards they start saying, well, you know, we, we've been in the lead all the time. This is not entirely true. They are latecomers. But I think this is typical of the Muslim Brotherhood. And Hamas, as I said uh, just now, is is um, springs from, from the Muslim Brotherhood. And as such, it's very typical of that uh, type of thinking. Thank you so much, Professor, for, for being here with us and answering all our questions. There is going to be a second part of this podcast, which will be broadcast later. I ask our listeners to stay tuned for the continuation of our discussion with Professor Wagmarker. Thank you so much. <laughs>